Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my song's gonna Hello and like welcome to the back. podcast That is always up to speed With Formula One My name is Mark Hamilton And joining me tonight My friend, my colleague, my neighbor My frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly My friend, how are you? I'm good, man. I've missed you saying that over the past like number of weeks because it was weird. I know we've done a couple of podcasts together, but like over that summer break and everything, it just feels like a long time since we've we've been in our normal cycle. So it feels good to be back, but I'm so so. You know, I'll I'll be honest. I'll be straight up. I'm I'm not feeling great because as, as much as I'm trying my very hardest to prolong summer. I, I can feel the shift in the seasons now, and I know that that autumn is right around the corner. And I love all the seasons, but I've just been enjoying this summer way too much that I'm not ready to trade in my flip-flops and shorts and t-shirts for warmer clothes. So, you know, whatever. I'll just put that there. Yeah, I feel you. I, I love the fall. The fall harkens back the NBA and the NFL, and it typically means we're in a stretch run with Formula One, and hopefully yep. we're going to see some really great races. And then, of course, it leads into Halloween and Thanksgiving and, of course, the holiday season. So lots to look forward to. But tonight's show's a, a little bit different, and it's a little bit off our normal cadence. But, you know, Daly and I were talking a couple of days ago when we came to this realization that we really haven't done a lot together recently. And while we been pumping out content individually. A lot of it may not have been totally F1 centric. It was more kind of motorsports uh, general. Uh, I'm still proud of doing it and I'm going to keep doing that. But we had the idea that maybe we should do a little bit of a F1 centric catch up news show, kind of cover yep. some of the stories of yep. the day. But we've also been having this mailbag that has been bursting at the seams. And we're not going to get to all of it today. I apologize, but we do have a ton of really, really great stuff to get to. But before we get there, we definitely have some news stories. Uh, and my friend, I did promise a couple of listeners earlier today, those that actually missed our Thursday news show, that I would also do a Fantasy League update. So whenever, whenever the time comes, I'll definitely drop that in. Well, why don't we just drop it in right now? If you got it locked and loaded, uh, now's as good a time as any. Because if we talk about it now, then we'll get we'll have like a whole bunch of tweets and stuff tomorrow. And we say, hey, you guys talked about it, and you went and did like another ninety minutes of talking about whatever, <laughs> and then you never went back to the fantasy <laughs> update. So, well, doesn't that sound yeah. like us? It, it, it does. I actually got <laughs> it up. So when I prep for a podcast, let's just pull back the currents a little bit. I come down. Well, you and I kind of collaborate on a big outline. It's usually three or four pages deep. It's got all the topics. We have the news stories linked within there. We write notes, we get charts, all that kind of stuff. And when I come down about an hour or two before, um, I 
open all those links. I get them all tabbed in the browser. I get the F1 2022 standings, the 21 standings. I get the 23 calendar up. I get the indie standings. Just so spread across my two screens, I have everything. The most difficult thing ever is getting the F1 fantasy site to work <laughs> and actually load. So that causes me more stress than anything, but it is up. So I definitely would like to share and provide a couple of quick updates because like I said, we did cover this on Thursday. If you missed the show, number one right now representing the big UK, Andrew T, 3,262 points from Canada. Mr. Adam J, 3,240 points. Also from the UK, Whitman R, 3,187 points. That is F, number four, also from the UK, 3,173 points. Number five, J West, 3,123 points, representing the Maple Leaf. Number six, Jesse H, 3,122 points. Number seven, also from Canada, Noah F, 3,110 points. Number eight, Ludwig Y from the UK, 3,107 points. Number nine, Marshall W. from the UK, 3,095 points. And rounding out the top 10, Aaron K., newcomer, 3,092 points. So again, for everybody that's joined and has been competing this year, and there's 2,000 of you, thank you so much. And we're working and feel like a bit of a broken record, but we'll formalize and officialize the, the prizes. But what I would say is that at the end of the season, if you do finish in a prize winning position, I ask that you reach out to us via Twitter just to make sure that you are actually a listener of this show before we package it up and send it your way. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, so not that we need any other reminders because the Drivers' Championship in the uh, 2022 Formula One World Championship has been kind of static, but let's just uh, go over it uh, again anyways. We'll go run down the top five because it's a... There's a couple of interesting things going on there. So Max Verstappen way out front. He's basically the going to be the 2022 world champion. He just needs to sew it up next weekend, which is the earliest point that he can do it. So it's all but a formality for, for Max. He's on top with 335. Charles Leclerc from Ferrari 219. Sergio Perez, the second Red Bull driver, 210. George Russell from Mercedes 203. And then Carlos Sainz, 187 for the second Ferrari driver. And as we talked about a little bit on Thursday night. Leclerc, Perez, and George Russell in a three-way tussle at the moment. So that could be very, very interesting and entertaining going down the stretch. In the constructor standings, Red Bull's 545 points, uh, way ahead of Ferrari with 406, Mercedes 371, Alpine 125, and McLaren 107. So there you go. So let's just jump right into the meat of the show, Mark. There was a couple of questions that uh, I don't think, uh, did we talk about them on the on the show last week, but maybe not. So one question that we had, uh, just uh, one that we get um, sent in quite a bit, why don't both Marks join Tim for the race reviews? And there's a very good reason for that. And that's just because recently our schedules have just been bananas. And while Tim seems to have been the one common, you know, thread or the foundation of doing the race reviews uh, recently, it's just been a little bit uh, up in the air as to whether it'd be one or both of us uh, joining Tim. And recently, it's only been one. I mean, last time I was away for the uh, Labor Day long weekend and my wife, I was just really crappy. So unfortunately, I had to, to sit out on that one. So MotoGP Corner, that one fell by the wayside for, for quite a bit. And then last Thursday, you just kind of threw it at me right out of nowhere. Back, I didn't get a chance back. to. Yeah, I didn't have a chance to queue up the music. So and apologies. Was, uh, Apologies about the MotoGP corner. I'm I'm in an, um, a bit of an emotional adjustment period. <laughs> Valentino Rossi, the individual who personally 
took my hand and brought me into the world of MotoGP, retired at the end of last year, and and is being a adjustment period for me. I, I'm not as familiar with the drivers. I'm not as familiar with the young talent. There isn't a transcendent superstar in the sport to keep me hooked. And when I have given an update recently, it's really been about Mark Marquez, the six times champion, and his diligent efforts to get back on the bike. And I think his that gets closer and closer. You'll probably hear a little bit more about that. But I definitely want to, and I aspire to bringing a MotoGP corner to to every episode. And it makes me feel good that people were missing it. Yeah, and it's fun to talk about other things uh, at some point as well. So we'll have to try and keep that uh, one going as we go down the stretch here. So uh, number three, why no midseason review this year? See question number one. And that was more or less uh, that the fact by the time we got to the summer break, it was just so hectic for us personally away from the show. We just didn't get a chance to sit down and do it uh, before I went on holiday. And then, you know, we had all these interviews and stuff, uh, you know, all set up. So it just, uh, it just didn't work out. So again, I mean, it, it would be an interesting one to talk about. I mean, it would be say, ah, well, you know, it hasn't been as an exciting season as last year, but I mean, you know, that, that old red marking pen and, uh, you know, the green one and the gold stars and, and, and the sad frowny faces, those would have been well used for, for a, a lot of topics. So, I mean, we've totally. kind of ta- touched on a lot of the things, but we didn't sit down and do that comprehensive one. So we'll make it up at the end of the year. We will do a nine-hour season Definitely. review, you know, minimum nine hours. So I feel, I feel like a bit of a chump as well. <laughs> During the summer break, I was actually invited on to Adam Burns. DNF F1 podcast that we did uh, mid-season report card. And I didn't think to ask for the audio to drop it into our stream so you could at least have had it. And it only occurred to me when I was in the shower a couple of days ago. I'm like, ah! <laughs> so I apologize. But yeah, we will absolutely, uh, we'll absolutely deliver a great post-season reports card show. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, it's it's just it's just been a very hectic time for us, uh, basically. And then the last one, which is going to kind of <laughs> it's going to be there's going to be a common theme here. Theme here. Pardon me. What happened to the weekly spaces sessions? So do do we really need to run down that one? <laughs> it's just been a question of sitting down and doing these things, uh, which you've been really really good at doing for such a long time now. Yeah, I love the spaces sessions, and we really kicked those off probably back in May, June, July of last year. Initially, I think there probably weren't a lot of people doing them, so it wouldn't be uncommon for us to throw up a spaces chat and get 80, 90, 100, 120 people in there, and it was a little fun, although a little bit difficult to moderate. I kind of like where we are now that the audience is... It's still a little bit smaller than I would like, but it's very intimate. It's very personal and it's very respectful. And I'll be very honest. I often specifically time when we do do them, I time them as my warm up to our Thursday night show so I can sit down, get the juices flowing, start talking about some of these topics, kind of work out in my head how I'd say some of these things. But also it's good to just kind of bounce ideas off of people before we go live on on the stream. And they often honestly um, keep me honest as well. and, And I get to use them as a bit of a sanity check but definitely hasn't been <laughs> happening with any with any honest frequency but hopefully that's something we can uh, turn around in the winter yeah absolutely okay a couple uh, kind of cool stats that uh, you've managed to, to, to pull out here so five years ago this weekend lewis hamilton won the singapore grand prix following what a collision between verstappen vettel and kimi raikkonen at the start of that race was that five years ago Oh unreal. my god! Just unreal, unreal, right? Do you, do you remember watching it live? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what I love about some of these races like Australia, some of the races in the Far East, of course, all the ones in North America. These are some of the ones that we actually can watch in a reasonable you know, time of day or night. So Singapore, it's it's a race I love in general. I remember I just agree. watching this I one. I agree. And I was just like, kind of like, I, I couldn't believe what I saw. But when I saw that stat, when you threw into the show notes, I was just like, where has the last five years gone? Okay, two and a half were like thrown up or you know, eaten up by the pandemic, of course. But still, 2017. Oh, my God, man. Where, where did the time go? Just to give everybody a little bit of context. So in that mo- moment, both Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen DNF'd. So we talk a lot about the fact that Ferrari has kind of collapsed this year. They've completely collapsed and it's been strategy on the track, et cetera. But you and I sit here we had these same conversations in 2017 and 2018. Here's the context going into Singapore. In the Constructors' Championship, Mercedes had 415 points. Ferrari was only 25 points behind them with 390 points. Ferrari goes into this race and they DNF both of their cars before the first corner. So obviously a lot of luck for for Mercedes in that moment. But at the same time, just a totally unforced error. And in that moment, their Constructors' Championship was over. Until 2022, Ferrari said, look back at that stat and said, uh, 2017 Ferrari, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was uh, that that was one of those memorable moments uh, for, for sure. Okay, another cool one here. So the most uh, Q3 appearances. So this goes back to 2006 since the, the current uh, qualifying format of Q1, Q2 and Q3 with the top 10 uh, knockout was introduced. Lewis Hamilton, 281 Q3 appearances, followed by Seb Vettel with 225. Kimi Raikkonen, the Iceman, has 191. Tied currently with Fernando Alonso. Valtteri Bottas, 156. Danny Ricciardo, 146. And Max Verstappen, 137. So they're all current or recently or soon to be retired Formula One drivers. That's a, a bit of a, a cool stat right there. Yeah, to contextualize that Lewis comment, I'm just looking this up right now. 304 career starts, 281 times. He's cracked Q3. That is the definition of consistent, especially when you consider that 2010, 2011, that 2012 McLaren. I mean, he he won in Austin in 2012, but those weren't necessarily great, great cars, but absolutely the definition of, of consistency throughout his career. Yeah, absolutely. And another one uh, from our friends at F1 underscore charts on social media, pole positions versus wins. So this is uh, the triple headed monster, Red Bull v Ferrari v Mercedes. So if you look at the pole positions, Red Bull have four this year. Max has got three. Sergio has one. And then you have eight for Ferrari, seven for Charles, one for uh, Sainz, and one for George Russell. Now, that's an interesting stat right there. Now we're going to compare that to the win side. So out of four pole positions, Red Bull have managed to convert that into nine. Unreal. Nine (laughs) race wins. Fantastic job. Brilliant. Wow. That, that's just a mind blower. Mind you, Ferrari have scored a lot of own goals this year and have made the, the, the job a Fair little enough. easier quite a few times uh, for, for uh, Red Bull. Always Max, of course, with eight victories this year and Sergio with one. Ferrari themselves have four wins, three for Charles and one for Carlos and Mercedes completely shut out this year. You only have about half a dozen races to go before the end of the year. Will they break their duck before we get to Yas Marina in Abu Dhabi at the beginning of December? 
hard to say, Sorry, but break if, their duck. What does that yeah, mean? I don't know. I was. I think so. I was watching English soccer and I heard that uh, <laughs> not so long ago. So, oh, like I think break, in, a goose egg? break a goose egg? I guess so. Okay. I guess so. Okay. It just sort of stuck in my mind. Learn and it something like, every time like with you, Daly. Yeah. Learn something yeah, every well, time. We're talking about an English guy driving a German car, so maybe it's maybe kind of applicable. But yeah. I was just about to say, if we sit here in a couple of months at the beginning of December, reflect back on the fact that Mercedes did not score a single race victory in the year 2022, that will be absolutely flabbergasting. Like I, I'm yeah. struggling to get my mind around it now. And after everything that we've seen, I mean, it's always been Ferrari. It's always been Red Bull this year, but that's quietly, I think been one of those things. I mean, of course uh, the Lewis and George and Mercedes fans are very you know, acutely aware of this, but still, I mean that, that will be mind blowing if that, that comes to pass. No race wins for the silver arrows in 2022. Yeah, first again time year, since so. 2012. Yeah, yeah. So, we'll, of course, we'll we'll keep up uh, and watch that over the year. So, um, let's talk silly season now because yeah. the driver market yeah. is not set for next year. There are still some potential moves that could be made before it's all said and done. So, a final agreement between Nick DeFries and Alpha Tauri apparently is close, and this is all really sort of going to hinge on the move of Pierre Gasly to uh, Alpine when that is confirmed. And then DeFries will be his successor at Alpha Tauri. And if that comes to pass, there'll be two Dutchmen in Formula One, which I would think would be the first time in about 15 years. I think what would be the last time? Who would that have been? Robert Dornboss and what was his name? Uh, Christian Albers, I think, uh, might have been the last two Dutch guys in uh, Formula One. So been uh, quite a while, but you know we, we've talked about it quite quite a, a, a bit. And regardless, if Gasly goes to Alpine and you end up with two French drivers driving a French car with a French engine in the back to kind of have the all France team there, which would be kind of cool, I think the the most important thing, at least for Pierre Gasly, is to finally shake off the shackles of the of the the Red Bull system. I, I think that. He needs that to really flourish in his career. I mean, he he had his peak at uh, Red Bull proper a couple of years ago and got booted back down to Alpha Tauri or then Toro Rosso halfway through the season. And I don't think that door is going to open again anytime soon. I mean, they they they've decided to stick with Sergio Perez and he's going to be their guy for, you know, until he kind of goes off the boil and he's done a very good job since I'd say the last third of last year, maybe last quarter of 2021 been pretty good this year and has helped rack up all the points uh, that are going to, you know, probably and most likely, well, my, who am I kidding? <laughs> Excuse me. Going to power them to a championship in the constructors uh, this year, but still that means that Pierre is most likely going to move to Alpine um, partner Esteban Alcon but if you look at some of the other names that are linked to some of the other teams, so first of all, let's start with Alpine because that is, I'd say, one of the most or more higher profile open seats. What with the surprise announcement of Fernando Alonso to jump ship and go over Aston Martin for 2023 and take Sebastian Vettel's empty seat. You have, um, let's see, about half a dozen, seven guys that are all apparently in the running to be Esteban Ocon's team uh, next or teammate next year. You got Pierre Gasly, you got Jack Doohan, you got Antonio Giovinazzi, Mick Schumacher, Nick DeFries, Danny Ricardo, Yuki Sonoda, and Colton Herta. 
Okay, that, that that's a lot. <laughs> Those are a lot of names, and of course, I mean, it, it isn't uh, you know one hundred percent confirmed. I mean, it's highly speculated where there's smoke, there's fire that uh, that Gasly will go to Alpine, but he could, in theory, go back and still be Esteban Ocon's teammate next year <laughs> before it's all you know by the time it's all said and done. So, your thoughts, uh, Hammy? There's there's a lot going on here. There's Let's put it that so way. much going on, and passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When I teased last week that there's still a lot to talk about over the next few weeks and months, this is one of those things. And I, I have to think that if Nick DeVries goes to Alpha Tauri, which seems incredibly likely, all of the momentum around Colton Herta has now collapsed. Red Bull had coordinated Colton to get a test with with Alpine in the next few weeks for no other reason than they wanted to see him in an F1 car and be able to accumulate some of the data. Uh, That test has been canceled. Of course, he tested earlier this year in a McLaren at Portugal, but that was behind closed doors and McLaren isn't about to share any of that data with Red Bull. So this kind of would have been their first peak at Colton in a Formula One car and a Formula One track. That's been abandoned and it's because the FIA, Formula One have effectively uh, announced that they're not going to make any move to make an exception for a driver, which I agree with. um, But unfortunately, they're not also willing to use this as a reflection point or an inflection point and use this as an opportunity to right size the way that uh, super license points are distributed amongst the various disciplines and championships. So that's, that's unfortunate. It's terrible. Absolutely. It needs to be done. It won't happen now. What a shame, but it means Colton Hurd is not coming to formula one next year, unless he wanted to race in uh, the Asian formula regional series. There was a very high likelihood that he could have won that championship scored 18 points, but is an awfully, awfully risky endeavor for Red Bull to temporarily pin him in a race seat, not knowing if he's actually going to be in there until weeks before the season began. So I kind of get where this is going. Pierre Gasly to Alpine to a French full-on works team. Wow, that is a marketing superstar. Like that would be a score. That would be a hat trick, as they say. I can't imagine a better pairing. Now, by all accounts, Esteban and Pierre have no relationship or have very little relationship. So the team is going to need to spend some time from Laurent Rossi to Otmar down working with these two drivers and making sure that they can create a tenable relationship. But what a great, great situation that you have an all French, even though they're based out of Enstone in the UK, that you have a French works team in Formula One and you're going to be able to mm-hmm. have two French drivers racing for them who have both in recent years won Grand Prix. It's just, it's a marketing machine and it sells itself. So very, very cool. So I think that's going to happen. I think the loser in this situation, once again, is Williams. You know, Williams was in a position where they thought they were getting Piastri. 
Piastri and his manager, Mark Webber, wanted nothing to do with Williams. And I get it. Like, what what has that team done to endear itself to talented young Formula One drivers? He goes to McLaren. And I think the next thing on their list was like, hey, where else are we going to go? And DeVries was seemingly there this whole time because Nick DeVries is linked to Mercedes. He's a part of their academy. academy. They've been pumping money into his development. He raced for them in Formula E. He's a test driver for them this year. It just seems so obvious. But when the Piastri thing fell apart, I don't think they had their ducks in a row to slide him into that seat. And for whatever reason, they've been dragging Nicholas Latifi along this entire time when probably should have made a hard decision about that driver earlier in the season. But it looks like once again, Williams is going to lose out on another top tier, talented, young Formula 2 driver. And it looks like it's going to be at the gain of Red Bull. And it looks like Red Bull is going to be able to slot him into one of those Alpha Tauri seats next to next to Yuki. And for Mercedes, and I know Total has said he's done everything he can to get him a seat, but there's only so much he can do. This is a big blow to McLaren or Mercedes as well, because they've invested significantly in this young driver and he may end up racing for, for Red Bull. And then where does it leave Williams once again? Like, do you roll it back with Latifi? Has he given you anything this year that suggests and infers that there's been any degree of, of improvement? I know earlier this week, uh, Yas Capito had said that, hey, he's not the same driver he was after the incident in Abu Dhabi, that psychologically that seems to weigh on him. But He's been an incredibly disappointing driver this year, and both Alexander Elbon and in his one race, Nick DeVries, absolutely ran circles around him from a performance perspective. So if you keep Nicky, I don't know what else you expect to get from him. And then are you going to bring in Dewan? Are you going to bring in Logan Sargent? Like, they're not going to get the top tier young driver that they could have had in Piastri or, or DeVries if things had played out a little bit differently. Yeah, it's interesting too because if you look at the <clears throat> excuse me, the names that are potentially linked with uh, with Williams, you have uh, Mick Schumacher, Nick DeFries, uh, Nick Latifi, and Logan Sargent. Uh, a couple of these uh, names you've already mentioned, of course. I don't know. I, I mean, the, the thing is too when it comes to to Nick DeFries. I mean, obviously he did very very well. I mean, they, they'd obviously must be having those discussions. How do we get Nick into our car for next year? But I mean, as we've uh, discussed, that that's probably not going to be where he ends up. But uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the the one thing is too. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say okay. One of the reasons that uh, that they would put him into that car is because he's got the Mercedes ties. I think that they're going to put the guy into the car that I think they think will do the best job for them. Because I mean, look what they did last year. They went completely off script and uh, and signed Alex Albon, who was obviously not a Mercedes driver. He still had uh, links with the with the Red Bull. Great point. And kind of Great like point. really surprised everyone that you know they were all really expecting to to uh, parachute Nick DeFries into the car or that Williams car about a year ago. So they've kind of underline their independence so i think what they will do they will get the they, they will make the decision for the driver that they want but i think you've really nailed it mark that they might not get the top tier young driver that uh, they, they might have had their their eyes on okay the next one so we've uh, talked about uh alpine we've talked about alpha tauri more or less we talked about uh, williams okay um this should be a, a fairly uh, easy one uh alpha romeo valtteri bottas veteran formula one driver i think he's the guy that you need as your number one with that uh, team 
you know, there, there's a lot of speculation what's going to happen with that team in the future. As we know that uh, that Audi is going to be involved. This is going to be a works team. I mean, um, Alfa Romeo has announced that they're going to be dropping their title sponsorship of this team after 2023. Anyways, th- this team, the look of this team is going to change over the next uh, couple of years. And I think you need an experienced driver like Valtteri Bottas in the team. I think he's done a pretty good uh, job this year. Certainly, I think he's done a better job as a veteran driver than the, than Kimi Raikkonen. Kimi, of course, at the telltale end of his career was pretty long in the tooth by the time he got there. Now, the question is, who lines up beside him next year in the Alfa Romeo garage? Two names uh, being uh, mentioned, Zhou Guanyu, uh, who, of course, is his uh, current teammate, a Chinese rookie Formula One driver, who I think has had a pretty decent campaign thus far. And the other name that is uh, linked to, 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 to this team as well is uh, Theo Poucher, who is a Formula 2 driver. I don't know, uh, Hammy. I would think that uh, unless there was some some real falling out or some real lack of uh, form just, uh, you know, for, from Joe that um, it, it just to me, it makes sense to bring him back next year. I think it's a good pairing. I think that, uh, like I say, Joe's had a pretty good uh, rookie season. I think that uh, he's obviously in a, in, in a place where he can learn a lot from a guy like Valtteri Bottas, who's been around, who's won races, been with uh, Mercedes for a number of years. So obviously that's a pretty uh, pretty good place for a young driver to be. I don't really know a lot about uh, Theo Poucher, so um, not really too sure what to say about that. But, uh, you know, if if I was Eric Vasseur, I wouldn't mess with the partnership I have now. Your thoughts? Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Tim and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, obviously, you know, Valtteri Bottas is the right guy. He's been around. He's been a winner. I, I think maybe the question mark here, and he'll be back next year, partly because he's under contract, but his season's been something of two halves. He scored points in seven of his first nine finishes. He hasn't scored in the points since Canada, and he's had, I think, three DNFs in the second half of the season. Like The, the season isn't tracking the way you would expect it to, but I think for his young teammate, I think Absolutely, he's done enough to earn earn a seat next year. And next year will ultimately be an incredibly important year for him in terms of, I would say, framing out what the next two to three years of his career are going to look like if he does return to yeah. F1 in 2024. But I think he's an exceptional young, young talent. I, I think he's eager to learn. I think he's been a great teammate to to uh, to his friend. I can't, can't remember Valtteri Bottas's name tonight. I don't know. Maybe it's late. I don't know. But I think it'd be a great fit. And the, <laughs> the other thing to consider here too is, and this isn't necessarily the reason to keep a driver because I think he deserves to be in Formula 1 on his own merits. F1 should be going back to China next year. We haven't been to China since 2019. And China is a mm-hmm. massive untapped market. And we've never had a Chinese driver in Formula One. If we have a young driver who has the ability to be nurtured, who could become very competitive, it could do wonders to unlock that market. And we keep talking about the exponential growth that Formula One's experienced in the United States in the last couple of years. I think people at Liberty are looking at China with the same enthusiasm and excitement that, hey, if we have the right guy and he's young and he's personable and he's charismatic and he's successful, he could trigger the same avalanche of financial success in China that we've seen in the US. And there's already talk about other markets within the PRC, within mainland China, um, trying to line up bids or an opportunity to secure a Formula One race. So I think he he deserves to be in Formula One on his own merits, but I think he's also mm-hmm. a potential windfall for the sport in terms of untapping uh, that uh, Chinese market. 
Yeah, and it's interesting too, right? Just the, the the larger discussion around Formula One being a truly global series, and you know, God knows that I love uh, Japan and the Japanese people and the culture, but you know, you really need to broaden Formula One's presence in Asia. And I mean, there's been a Japanese presence in drivers and constructors and engine suppliers for decades, going back for for a long, long time. But you know, it's it's time to really expand that to that that presence in that part of the world because you know, as we've talked about before, if you kind of have gaps in different parts of the world, then can you really make the claim that it's a world championship? I mean, of course it is, but I mean, there are some very very large markets that are still relatively, like you say, untapped. Daily, that actually ties in perfectly to the next story, and I'm going to skip a he- ahead a little bit here because I think your your segue is perfect, but. There was a oh man, you did want to talk about silly season regarding Haas. I think we're good. I think we're good. I'm, I'm done with Haas. Haas has to, Haas has to earn the right for us to talk about them on this show. But Graham Rahal Fair enough. Fair tweeted enough. a couple of days ago this. Uh, he was in response to uh, Dave Moody. Dave Moody said F1 has made it very clear for many years they have no interest in U.S. drivers, just U.S. dollars. And Graham Rahal responded, "Damn right, F1 is an elitist sport. They don't want us. Remember." that they want U.S. companies' money, they want wealthy U.S. individuals' money, but they don't care about the rest, implying drivers. Always has been that way, always will be. And and the problem with this tweet is not what it says, but to me, the fact that you can quite easily unpack some truth from this. And this goes back to the conversation Mm -hmm. you and I have had the last couple of weeks about the way that the super license points are distributed amongst the different disciplines and amongst the different championships. And we have a really great question in the listener mailbag that we'll get to in a little bit. And I don't want to get, get ahead of myself, but I think, I think the formula one ladder, the the ladder, uh, the structure, the infrastructure that was designed to develop young drivers and bring them into Formula One is incredibly European centric. It's based out of the F4, F3, the F2 model. Predominantly, they're based in or adjacent to continental Europe. They are based close to the bases of the Formula One teams. The Formula One teams pump tons of money into these these series. They they have close collaborations with DAMS and Prema and all of these premier institutions that are the driving force behind these championships. Formula One and the existing teams have every motivation to continue the existing model, which is to develop talent locally, you're in Europe, and funnel them through their existing pipeline. That, that's their model. That's what they're familiar with. And I think unless you have a Nicholas Latifi or unless you have a Lawrence Stroll whose father is willing to foot the bill to send you to Europe at a young age and partner you with one of these bigger racing teams like Dams or Prema and immerse you in the European ladder, you're not going to have a shot at Formula One. And I think the argument now is that as Formula One becomes more and more popular in the United States, the question is, well, what about all these hyper-talented drivers in Indy that will never get a shot because of the super license system or because of these other factors, these other barriers, whether they're artificial constructs or whether they're physical, tangible barriers? And I think what we've seen the last couple of years is we've seen some indie drivers make the switch to, or sorry, Formula One drivers that have made the switch to Indy. And we've seen Marcus Arison. He's not exactly winning championships. We've seen Roman Grosjean, 
I think he's in 13th in the championship this year. And again, there's different pieces to this. Some teams are more competitive than others. Sometimes there's teammate rivalries. But ultimately, Indy's far more of a spec series than Formula One is. So you would think that if someone's capable of being a world-class Formula One driver and they move over to Indy, you would assume, you would expect that they should be competing for championships. And that's not always what we've Mm -hmm. seen. And I think there's some commentary here that now that there are so many more eyeballs in the United States on F1, the question is going to continue to be, well, what about all these young American kids that grew up on dirt tracks and grew up on ovals and they grew up through the developmental systems that exist in this part of the world and then go to Indy and then they compete on super ovals and street courses and hybrids and dedicated surface on smooth aggregate on ugly aggregate they race with spec engines and they race with spec chassis like if they could be successful there and I think we saw this from Calamilla the other day he he argued that Indy is an infinitely more difficult and complex championship than formula two is. And, you know, I think you made that great point or somebody made a great point. It was Marshall. Marshall made this great point in the spaces last week that in formula two, you never have to race a champion because as soon as you win that championship, you're out of the sport. And in Indy, they continue to accumulate championship champions over time. So at any given race, you might be racing against five different previous IndyCar champions. Like Indy is extremely difficult. And I'm not saying that, mm-hmm. that they should be weighted any differently in terms of accumulating super license points. I just think it's absurd that a Formula 2 driver who finishes second or third in the Formula 2 championship in a year where the talent might be incredibly watered down gets an instant pass to F1, yet somebody who can consistently finishes in the top five and Indy wins races, takes pole, may never get a shot. That's that's my argument. So what I'm saying with Graham's tweet here is the perception is not favorable to F1. I think what is helpful is that we've got Formula One teams that are now starting to invest. McLaren, big one. They're starting to invest in the championship. They're building a foundation. They're building an infrastructure over here. But historically, yeah, you could you could make that argument. And I think US companies, and we talked about this last week, like we read some of the companies that are official sponsors for McLaren, 80% of them are US-based. 80% of them are mm-hmm. US-based sponsoring a British-based Formula One team with a German engine in the back of it without any American drivers on the F1 team. Like, I, I, but I with get an American CEO, with an with an American CEO, good call, good call. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's my rant. That's my rant, my friend. I think I'm done with my rant. I'm sorry. Well, you know, no, no. I, I think those are all valid points, but you know, we can also tie it back to what we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago about um, you know Asia and China and opening up that market. You know, if they want to have like a, a global reach. You know, you have to open up like these Asian markets and have Asian races and drivers and you can't just say be limited to Japan because Asia geographically is a very big uh, part of the world. So, I mean, if we're going to get on to, you know, you know, expound that and kind of evangelize that, you know, to be a truly global series, then we have to bring that argument forward and tie Great it call. into the comments from Graham Rahal, right? Great call. So, I mean, you know, if you have this very narrow development funnel that, you know, like you say, I mean, the, the opportunities to go through there are very, very limited, then, you know, you're automatically excluding this huge pool of talents that, uh, you know, that come from all these different uh, racing backgrounds. So this ties back again into the conversation that we had on Thursday, that it's time for them to reevaluate the way that they weight these different uh, series 
and to the, the, the way that drivers can accumulate uh, super license points, right? Or else you're going to have a lot more Colton Hurtas in the, in, in the future. I mean, you had that great stat of all these different uh, guys that have, um, that have had enough points to qualify for a super license in the last, what was it, decade or something? There was, what, yeah. seven, eight drivers, including like... Helio Castroneves, uh, Juan Pablo Montoya, Alex Palau, and I, I can't remember them all off the top of my head. But the thing is, they're all basically, I mean, if you know Indy at all, they were all basically household names. It's just like th- they would be names you would automatically rattle off probably right right away, right? Yeah. With a contemporary just, IndyCar driver. So I, sorry, go ahead. I was please. just going to say on that Alex Palau piece as well, you know, when somebody wins a Formula Two championship, we get so excited. We adorn them as the next great one, that they are destined to Formula One. Formula One is their destiny, and Formula One owes them an opportunity. And what a shame it is when they don't get that opportunity to race in Formula One. It's 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 almost like mm-hmm. something that they've earned has been taken away from them. But we don't have the same conversation about some of these young drivers in, in Indy. When Alex Palo won the IndyCar Championship with Chip Ganassi in 2021, who was standing up talking about his opera? Like, it's happening now. Admittedly, it's happening now. But why don't we talk about indie championships in the same way that we do Formula Two champions? Like, I would argue well, that Alex Palo is a better driver than most F2 champions have been. Well, I, I think that just because we're having this this con- this conversation right now, and guys like Graham Rahal are, are making these comments in social media. I think underlines the fact that that Indy has come a long ways to where they right. were. I mean, Hammy, go back to when we were kids. Think of all the big name drivers that were in IndyCar. You had Emerson Fittipaldi, you had Mario Andretti, you had Danny Sullivan, you had Michael Andretti, um, you had Eddie Cheever. All these guys that were really, really, really good drivers. And I mean, IndyCar was big in the 80s and 90s. Massive. Get to the late 90s. You have the split, right? You have like then Champ Car and IRL. I mean, you had like the, the basically one were racing on the ovals and then the other series was racing everywhere else that they could basically. And, and it hurts. It really hurt open wheel racing in North America. So eventually, long story short, they're able to kind of rebuild and merge again and rebuild the the, the series. But it's taken a long while uh, to, to to really bring bring it back. And I mean, there's been some very very good drivers racing in IndyCar this time, but I, I you know it, in this intermediate time. But I think that it's really evolved to the point again that it is a very good, very tough, and a very challenging series. And I think it deserves more attention. And I think rightly, the series should be weighted differently when it comes to super license points i mean uh, you know i mean again is formula one really going to be a globally representative uh, motor series to have like the best 20 drivers in the world competing if the 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 parameters to to enter the sport are really really narrow because then you know if that's the case then graham's completely on point in saying it is an elitist sport because you're basically ruling out 99.9 percent of all eligible drivers just by some ridiculously high bar for eligibility right daily i just want to take us off track for 30 seconds i just pulled up the 1994 indycar championship standing so this okay. was this was pre the split this is where it was kind of peak in that year 1994 your engine manufacturers were from chevy ford cosworth buick and maynard and if you look at the championship you raced that year in the u.s australia and canada nigel mansell oh, surface paradise yeah surface paradise baby uh nigel mansell yeah, yeah. actually was it surface paradise that year or were they 
they, I think that was later. I feel like that. Oh, yeah, no, you're Maybe right. It was. it was. Nope. Yeah. Surface Paradise. You're absolutely right. By the way, Nigel Mansell won there that year. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Here's your here's the top 5 that year. Nigel Mansell jumping over from from Formula 1 wins the championship with 191 points. Emerson Fittipaldi representing Brazil finished second with 183. Paul Tracy representing Canada finished Paul third Tracy, with 157 yeah. points. Yep. For Bobby Rahal finished fourth with 133 points. Um, and then do, 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 it goes on and on. But a couple of things. One, it was a hugely diverse roster of drivers. You have Americans, Brazilians, Canadians, Brits, Italians. But uh, IndyCar was something very, very different there. And the the split caused two decades of harm. And I feel like only now is it really, really recovering. And of course the two sides, I, I shouldn't say they came together. Indy basically bought out the, the, the smoldering remnants of, of champ car in 2007, 2008. But I feel like they're in a really good place. But my fear when I, when I look at some of these, these numbers, man, is there are probably some drivers in, in formula one today who could be outperformed by, existing IndyCar drivers. And we just, we need to right-size that. Like we need to, we, you and I definitively need to know that the drivers in Formula One are the best drivers in the world. We can't go in knowing that this driver and this driver and this driver are worse than these five drivers in Indy. And if those drivers in Indy enjoy it and they want to be there, sure. I just, given the opportunity, I don't know why they would want to stay. Yeah, so well, that, that great point, but I mean, let's look at things uh, in a slightly different uh, lens now. Formula One fans are smart, and the thing that I've learned over the past couple of years that the, the 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 learning curve for new fans of the sport is extremely quick. People are learning the sport, and they're you know getting very very we involved. We joke that they grow out of our show. We joke that they grow out of our show, man. They they do and they they've earned it because you know we, we set the bar kind of low. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Having said that, the thing is that at some point they're going to realize that uh, you know it, it's going to become a credibility problem for Formula One because you're going to have like this very very big pool of very smart fans realizing that you know okay guys well, that's great that you've got 20 drivers in there but you know what about all these other good drivers that aren't getting a look in because the way that your rules are set up for right, eligibility totally, for super totally. license points so at some point it's going to be a credibility and an image problem for them and i just wonder my, my big question is are they going to have enough foresight to deal with this now or some point in the future before it becomes a bit of, you know, like an image or a credibility problem? And, uh, you know, potentially, you know, people start walking away. I, I don't know if people would, but I mean, you know, it could be a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, like, like I say, a bit of an image thing for them. Okay. Let's move on to the uh, next one. Okay, so um, you want to talk about Helmut Marco and the the the, the deal for Colton Herta didn't go through. Anyways, Marco had to say, "quote It's a shame that people don't realize what a value an American driver, especially like Colton Herta, would have for the booming American market, especially with three F one races." 
yeah, okay, but uh, again, that kind of ties in a little bit from you know into Graham's point of view because don't you get the, the the vibe from from Helmet that he's kind of looking at Colton as a bit of a commodity, like a, like a bit of a marketing tool there. I mean, Colton's yeah. obviously a very good driver, but I kind of the the vibe that I got is uh you know this this is our po- poster boy for Vegas, Coda, and Miami, yeah. right? So anyhow, I hear you. Yeah, I hear yeah. you. Okay. Okay, so the next one, this kind of ties in as well. It was some tweet spot from from Will Buxton, F1 uh, journalist, and Will's all over the place. I, I you know, I, I always, whenever I read stuff from Will, like I kind of always hear it in my head, like like the <laughs> way they because he's got like a very effect. unique way. You see that the yeah, talking yeah, head with exactly. the black background, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyways, why do you take this one away, Hammy? Yeah, a couple of quotes from Will, and Will has been heavily criticized by some corners of F1 Twitter over the last few years because he he hasn't been front and center when it came to criticizing Formula One and the FIA for the way that things played out in, in Abu Dhabi. And at the same time, I, I kind of have to respect his position that he's, for all intents and purposes, a Formula One employee given his role at at Sky Sports. But I like the I liked how candid these quotes are, and the quotes are, and I and I quote here: um, "I've argued from the point of its inception that the super license point system was reactionary, unnecessary, and potentially damaging to F one's desire to field the very." best drivers in the world. I pray this entire herd of mess results in its rethinking and long overdue overhaul. And then he goes on to say, fascinating, isn't it? That the super license point system was brought in as a knee jerk reaction to the rapid ascent to formula one of a driver who has since amassed 17 poles, 21 fastest laps, 30 victories, 72 podiums, and a world championship plus is on his way to a second world championship. That driver, of course, being young Max Verstappen. And of course, if the if the super license points were in effect when he entered the sport, he would not have been able to join Formula One. And if you want to go back a little farther, uh, why can't I remember his name right now? The the oh my god! I don't know. It's it's it, it's, it's just one of those. It's nights, one of my those friends. nights, and this is where we would go and we would slice and dice. But our commitment to the listeners is a hundred percent that we uh we record live to tape. Kimi Raikkonen, Kimi Raikkonen was the exact same thing. That if the current <laughs> that if the current super license structure was in place back in the early two thousands when he joined the sport, he would he himself wouldn't have, have qualified for a super license. So to me, my perspective has always been this, and I, I talked about this with my buddy Randy. These Formula One teams are multi-billion dollar organizations who sink hundreds of millions of dollars investing and developing their cars. If they believe that somebody that they have in front of them is capable of driving that car and they pass some basic criteria, they have a street license, they've competed in some competitive series. If they feel confident, let them in the seat because if they're not successful, that's on them. They are going to pay the financial price for having made that mistake. Don't let this artificial, unnecessary react. I like it. Will Will Buxton's comment: reactionary, artificial construct prevent really great mm-hmm. talent from reaching from reaching Formula One because it goes back to what Graham said. It feels like it's designed in its in its outline in in concept to prevent young talented American drivers in Indy from getting to F1 because it penalizes you for racing in Indy and it rewards you for racing in the European ladder F2 and F3. 100%, but not even uh, racing in Formula 2 or F3 is a guarantee to get into Formula 1. We, we've talked about this uh, you know, just, just even a couple of minutes ago, but 
Formula 2 is uh, just recently this week uh, stood by this rule of not allowing uh, champions to return. And this is uh, based on recent um, comments made by Felipe Drugovic, who's a 22-year-old uh, driver from Brazil. He has won the series, and that means at the end of the year he is out. He has landed a spot on Aston Martin's new junior driver program. But it's unlikely that he's going to find a race seat for for next uh, for next year. Uh, anyways, uh, Felipe had to say, "quote In my opinion, either you're a champion and cannot stay anymore, and you have to be promoted to F1, or you can stay." It's kind of how it works in Moto GP, or sorry, Moto Two and Moto Three. I think first of all, what needs to change is whoever wins the championship needs to go into F1. End quote. So, uh, anyways, um, F2 CEO uh, Bruno Michel said, quote, I disagree with it. I think it's a pyramid and you have to have a system where at some point it has to be up or out. I wouldn't like F2 or F3 to become professional championships because if you do that, that's exactly what's going to be the issue. You have guys staying forever in the same championship, having big advantage because they have a massive experience over the young drivers who are coming. Not only would it not be good for their careers, but it wouldn't be good for the young drivers because it probably would be not shining as much because they would be fighting against people that are honestly probably not better than them, but have much more experience, know the tracks, know the car know the team so whatever so for me absolutely not i've always been very very pushy for that we did it from the very beginning of gp2 and gp3 the winner cannot stay and i think it's very important to continue end quote those are interesting uh, quotes uh, both from uh, drugovic and also from uh, the f2 ceo uh, bruno michel i kind of wonder that perhaps what if they were to meet halfway and i'm just kind of throwing something yeah, here it, at the man. wall and see if something will stick <laughs> Excuse me, I'm getting all, I'm getting choked up here. I'm so emotional about this. <laughs> uh, anyways, but I, I understand Michelle's uh, comments that you don't want it turning into professional series. It is a development series after all. But what about if they gave the returning champion one more year to come back and defend their title? You know, I mean, some guys might want to move on. They might have a seat in Formula One, but why not at least give them that option? You know, what one more year to d- defend your championship? I don't know. Yeah, I think anything that's, to it. I think that's a really good point. And the other question is, what would what would Formula One be doing right now if it couldn't stash all of these F two winners in Formula E? Because that's what they're doing, right? That in lieu of these drivers less, being able yeah. to go back to F two, they're getting stashed away in Formula E and doing these part time test driver test driver programs. Yeah, I just. I, I dis I, I agree that it needs to be a kind of a terminal based championship that is designed to promote with within and provide young drivers with a, an exceptional talent to compete at a high level. I, I do take exception with the fact that that rule is not applied to the W series. I, I feel like the W series winner should be pushed into a F3 drive and that there should be the necessary funding to accommodate that transition. I don't like the fact that Jamie Chadwick is back again and again because there's no clear path forward for her. I just feel like the W series yep. has to function like F3 and F2. And again, that that is more of uh, a slander at the fact that nobody in the world of F3, uh, nobody in the world of Formula One has been willing or able to, to fund a smooth transition for her. And I'm excited she's going to be able to do that Indy Lights test, but it shouldn't have had to come to that. She should have an F3 drive. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we can kind of tie in the the comments we were making about uh, indie and uh, and also Asia into the the whole female driver thing. And it's not truly a representative, fully global championship if you are only having one gender in behind the steering wheel. But that's a very complicated and very deeper discussion than we really have uh, time for tonight. Okay, uh, next one. This is interesting because Tim and I have talked about this uh, after the last uh, couple of races uh, recently. And uh, Mattia Bonato, the um, team principal at Scuderia Ferrari, uh, says that the FIA needs to consider increasing power unit allocation per season for the teams after basically 50% of the grid took massive penalties at the Italian Grand Prix last weekend. We've kind of seen that over the past uh, couple of races since the the return from the summer break. And I think Tim's really come up with a, with a good idea that instead of having grid penalties, why not dock the team's points in the constructors that i think seems to be a bit of a a logical or at least somewhere where there's a discussion to be had because i I understand the the reason for power unit allocations and gearboxes it's all to do with cost right i mean all these components and engines and everything in formula one are horrendously expensive right from a power unit down to the smallest widget so you want to keep that in check but it's getting a little bit ridiculous because there is going to be wear and tear over the course of a season, which is set to get bigger and bigger in the years ahead and potentially could go up to 25 or 26 races per year if they ever get to the bar that they really want to get to. And I think it really takes away from the spectacle. And I think at the end of the day, it's the fans that 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 bear the brunt of that. I mean, in some cases, it'll make it uh, you know kind of exciting, but... If the championship was really, really close, would you really want to see Max at the back of the grid or Lewis at the back of the grid or Charles at the back of the grid and just take it away and, and, and making his rival's job less difficult on that day uh, because of something that's out of his control? So, I mean, I, I, I really agree with what Tim says. I think the drivers bear the brunt of this um, this this system and ultimately from there, the fans. I have some strong thoughts about this, my friend. I, I gathered so because there there was a slight pause there. You were either going to say, nope, nothing further to add, or you were like just collecting yourself mentally. I definitely to, was to not just... checking my work emails during that last segment. Definitely wasn't. But I did in the meantime bring up some data points. And let, let's just go back to the fact that in the previous generation of power units, when we were rocking those far more simplified V8s, I think that any given point, your engine allocation during a season was eight eight power units. And when the championship was, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 races long, that was basically a new power unit every two races. I, I think what's really important here is that the introduction of these much stricter controls on the number of power units and power unit components that you use is one, it's, it's a mechanism to manage costs, but at the same time, it's also a mechanism to to promote more competitive balance that and it's and it's it's a slippery slope because the big teams like Red Bull and Ferrari and Mercedes are always going to push back. They they are well endowed financially and you could double the mm-hmm. allocation. You could go from three internal combustion engines, which is the rule today, to six. You could go to six and they wouldn't feel it at all, where some of the smaller teams may genuinely struggle to fit six internal combustion engines in under the cost cap. And some of them may just not be able to do it. So it kind of lessens that competitive 
competitive balance, which this mechanism is supposed to preserve. Now, the challenge though is, and I'm going to bring this up right now. So the current structure is this, each team, each driver is given three internal combustion engines, three turbochargers, three MGUHs, three MGUKs, two energy stores, that's the battery, two control electronics, and eight exhaust systems. There's a lot of exhaust systems. They're largely non-mechanical in nature, and they tend to get banged up pretty, pretty hard when you go around these racetracks and you hit the curbs and go off. So you're given eight exhausts. Now, if I go through, we have six races left. Lewis has already used four internal combustion engines, Russell three, Max five, Sergio four, Charles Leclerc five, Sainz four, Ricardo's on his third, Lando's on his fourth, Alonso's on his fifth, Esteban Ocon's on his fourth, Gasly's on his fourth, Yuki's on his sixth, Lance is on his third, Seb's on his third, Alex is on his third, Latifi's on his third, Valtteri Bosses is on his sixth, Zhu is on his fourth. Magnuson's on his fourth. Mick Schumacher is on his fourth. So if you take an average, the average number of internal combustion units consumed this year is about four and a half. And the rule is three. So I don't like this mess of grid penalties. But at the same time, if it's abundantly clear to everyone that no one's going to finish a championship with three internal combustion engines, but the teams will spend to get to four or five, just increase the allocation and do away with these nonsense, nonsense grid penalties dances that we that we often see. That I'm all for competitive parity, but I think what we're seeing is that when they need them, the teams will spend to use that third or fourth or fifth power unit. I guess the question then is, do we end up in the exact same situation where they're maybe not using five or six over a season, but they're using seven or eight? Because ultimately, it's always 100%. beneficial for yeah. them to use internal combustion engines because a fresh internal combustion engine, a fresh turbocharger, a fresh MGUH, MGUK delivers better, more rapid performance. So they're always going to be incentivized. So I don't have an answer for this. It just feels like when you're when the limitation in the rules is three and that we're at this point in the season and you already have how many drivers, six drivers that are on their fifth, either they're treating those power units poorly or they're just gaming the system knowing that the penalties aren't effective enough to have any impact on their championship. So so let's put it this way, regardless if it's three for the ICEs or 10 or somewhere in between, the same for the MGUKs and Hs and all these other doodads, I, I kind of liken it to the point that, let, let's just put it this way, Formula One always runs at the limit and these limits and stresses are to the extreme. It's just the nature of the sport. There's a lot that uh, these cars have to absorb to perform and drive as fast as they do. So I think that whatever the limit is, they're going to like go right up to that limit and exceed it each and every year. It's like the, the old saying that no matter how big of a house you buy, you're always going to find a way to fill it up with furniture and junk and Amen. whatever at the end Amen. of the day. I think, <laughs> I, I think that's going to be exactly the same way. So mm. that's why I'm really coming on, like on board with Tim's suggestion, dock the team points in the championship. Because if you say, I don't know. Let's just throw the it out constructors there. Five championship the points. constructors. C- constructors. Right, because that's what pays Not for the, the driver. prize money. Boom, you nailed it. Because then all of a sudden, if you're losing, you're you're changing out all these points, you're exceeding your allocation, <clears throat> maybe you drop a place in the constructors and that has big, big, big financial implications. And it puts the onus and the pressure more onto the teams and it doesn't penalize, I think, the, the, the driver's 
artificially and I think also unfairly. I mean, it's not an artificial penalty. It's like, okay, you change out this component. You have to take X number of grid spot uh, penalty uh, because of it. Fair enough. That's what, what the rule is. But that's, I, I think, Tim's idea. I think he's really onto something. Hit the teams in the constructors. Take away whatever points is because each one of those points has a very big dollar value associated with it. And then that, that, that number is just even magnified and amplified if that results in a drop down in the constructors championship at the end of the cool. year. I think there's something to cool. it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, let's move along. We should maybe just kind of speed through <coughs> these uh, last uh, couple, and then we can get to the uh, the mailbag. <coughs> okay, so I'm going to skip ahead a couple in the in the in the uh, the 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 show outline here. So Honda have won more than fifty percent of the Formula One races they have participated in since they announced last year that they are withdrawing from Formula One. This year, a Honda engine, even though it's got an RBPT, Red Bull Powertrain's badge on the side, has won nine races. You just have to think that somewhere in Tokyo that there are an executive or executives just screaming with frustration that they are dominating the sport this year along with Red Bull and getting very, very little recognition for it, if any at all, because there isn't a single Honda badge on it uh, anywhere. It's it just must be, you know, anyways, it is what it is. Okay, uh, final one before we get into the mailbag. 10 p.m. start is going to be the perfect time for the new Las Vegas Grand Prix, which will come online for the first running next year, November of 2023. And all I have to say to that is, hell yes. 10 p.m. Pacific be Standard great- Time for us, baby. Pacific. 1 a.m. Eastern. It. Love I, it. I am all for that. I've, I've never said this before, and this is going to be a hot take. I hate Sunday Grand Prix. I know it is the backbone in the heritage of formula one but sunday is the worst week of the worst day of the week i hate getting up at 5 a.m for me having a grand prix on saturday night and being able to sleep in on sunday oh man i'm all for i'll never be able to afford to go to this race i'm not even going to pretend but i will (laughs) love watching it on tv at 4k it's going to look spectacular i cannot wait oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's going to be something else. And I'm all for this. Uh, I, I think the 10 p.m. time slot for the Las Vegas Grand Prix is absolutely ideal. Okay, l- let's do this mailbag thing, my friend. We haven't done this in a while. Yeah. And that's uh, completely on us because you all send us messages and tweets all the time and we don't always get around to them. So that's uh, that's our bad. So let's start with the first one. Uh, Anthony Cullen at Driver Market F1. Question, I just saw the article you shared that Yoss thinks that the events of last year are impacting Latifi. Curious to hear your thoughts on if those events are also impacting Lewis. Lewis has talked about Abu Dhabi flashbacks in the last two races and described the events as a trauma previously. Do you think the way last season ended is impacting his performance this year? Thanks. Ooh, coming out, coming strong here right out of the chute. Anthony not uh, holding back. 
I'm going to let you take this one. I was hoping you wouldn't. <laughs> I, I was really. <laughs> I did want to. Yeah, that's why I was really I, just I hoping to lean to into uh, anything that you had to say. That you're like, yeah, I agree. That's that's so insightful. It's tough. I I think for sure. I think that yeah, for sure. That's and I'll start with Nicholas Latifi. I think Nicholas Latifi had a couple of bright moments last year. He had that points finish in Hungary. He had. He was fortunately in, in the right grid position when they called that race in, in Spa after two laps the, the following Grand Prix weekend. So he scored a couple of points finishes and there was some enthusiasm about that. Ending your year with a crash while trying to overtake Mick Schumacher at the back of the field, uh, ultimately resulting in a change to the outcome of a Formula One championship is not ideal. And I'm sure he wore that all off season. He shut off his social media and he had to go underground to try to escape it. I think he comes back. Reality hits him like a ton of bricks because now all of a sudden he needs to be in the sim and he needs to be on the track and he's wearing the stress of what happened last year and he doesn't want to repeat it. And he's also trying to retain his seat and he's got a new teammate that's outperforming him. I think all of those factors are probably playing into the psychological battles that Nicholas Latifi is contending with. And also at the end of the day, he's a great kid. He's certainly not as talented as anybody else on the, on the, on the calendar. Lewis, I, I don't know. Like I just, I look at some of the psychological warfare and the battles that he's been through in the past and he's always come out and triumphed. You know, we, we sat down with, with Bird a couple of months ago and we did the mechanic, the book review for the mechanic. And that book does a great job mm-hmm. detailing the absolute toxic warfare, the chemical warfare within McLaren between the two camps, the Lewis camp and the Fernando camp, and ultimately neither win a championship. Fernando exit, but Lewis comes out and runs away with, he doesn't run away. He manages to secure the title in 08. And then he left that team uh, despite massive negative press that he'd made the worst decision in his career. He, He leaves and he helps win the 2014 title and the 2015 title with Mercedes. And then of course, 2016 is a slog is absolutely a barroom brawl and he doesn't win the championship, but he comes back and he wins 17, 18, 19, 20. He wins four more in a row. And and often in some of those times fighting back a really resilient Ferrari team. I don't know. I, I don't know if what we're seeing this year is Lewis adapting to the new car, the new regulations. I don't know if some of this is a little bit of an emotional, psychological hangover from from last year. I just I can't believe that any human being in the world couldn't have couldn't have taken on some emotional baggage that you're five laps away from a championship, and then that being the outcome that that robs that title from you. And again, Max. We're not taking anything away. Max fans, we're certainly not taking anything away from you. But I'm sure that as a driver, that's not how you would have, I shouldn't say that, you would not have wanted to lose a championship in that fashion. So I'm sure there's some emotional baggage, there's some emotional scarring, but whether that's whether that's impacting and manifesting itself in, in his racecraft, I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, because you're trying to jump into between into somebody's headspace, right? And, and, and somebody you don't know personally. So, you know, how, how accurate can it really be? But I, I totally agree with you. I mean, you made some great points there. I mean, that, that, um, I mean, the only time it was previously like that intense recently was 2016 with, uh, with Nico Rosberg. And I think mentally, 
Lewis was getting a lot of space rent free in in Nico's head. I, I don't think that uh, that Lewis was lose, losing any sleep over what uh, Nico Rosberg uh, thought of him. I mean, Nico even said one of the justifications he gave for retiring after sixteen was he wasn't prepared to go into that mental battle exactly, again uh, with, with Lewis exactly. Hamilton because. He's just like, you're not fighting Lewis on the track. You're also playing the mental game with that. And there are few people that are as mentally tough as Lewis Hamilton. But you you make a great point that after what happened at uh, Abu Dhabi last year, it's got a way on you at some point. Because, I mean, Lewis was laps away from winning a championship. And not just any championship, it would have been a record-setting championship and like we say we don't want to take anything away from from, from max because he won that uh, that that race and that championship based on the circumstances and i know there's there's a lot of controversy around that but at the end of the day you know there was you know i i mean what do you do if you're lewis in 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 that situation i mean to say that hurts i mean that that that's an understatement i mean he went completely off grid for not just like a couple of days or weeks. I mean, he went off off the grid for months. I mean, we didn't really see Lewis reappear until just before the start of this season. So, yeah, I mean, to to really kind of draw any conclusions from, from the outside, I, I just find it very tough. I, I would think that, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to be, or certainly... Um, uh, well, let's just put it this way. I, I think it's all of it. I think it's a uh, residual um, energy from from last year, the, the the new cars this year. I mean, who can forget that image of uh, Lewis barely pulling himself out of the car after Azerbaijan and walking around like a you know a crippled and and feeble you know old man who could barely barely walk on his own. That was you know <laughs> not an image of that that I normally associate with Lewis Hamilton, who I think is very fit and very vibrant and healthy individual so it's tough i mean i think there's a lot of things going uh going against him this year and i think that next year will be an interesting year for for the career of lewis hamilton i mean if he has another year this next year like he had this year got to think that he probably wouldn't want to come back for a third one afterwards but uh, who knows Okay, next one, Michelle at Mish310. Michelle G asks, regardless of super license points, what IndyCar driver do you think would perform best in F1? I think we kind of sort of touched on this one uh, a little bit uh, earlier. I think uh, Alex Palo is one that uh, you really gave a good shout to. Colton Herta has sort of been anointed as the uh, as the favorite to, to get into into Formula One, of course, uh, as we talked about as well, that uh, Helmut Marco seems to think that uh, there, there's a lot of monetization, let's say, opportunities around the American driver at three uh, races stateside uh, next year. But uh, those are a couple of names that immediately uh, uh, pop uh, into mind. You got yeah, anybody else you want to add to that list? Maybe Joseph Newgarden, two times championship. I think oh, he yeah. won in yeah. 17 sure. and Great 19. Show. And then subsequent to that, he finished yep. second in three straight championships. He's uh, he's 31, so maybe on the wrong side of, of 30, but we've got an awful lot of Formula One drivers in the 30s right now. Uh, I would love to see Palo and I would love to see uh, Joseph Newgarden, uh, given the opportunity to compete. I, I love Scott Dixon as well. He's won an absolute dump truck load of championships, but I think at a 42, it might be a, it might be a tough sell to a formula one team to give him a test. Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, next one is uh, from Ryan at FF Ryan F one. Uh, Ryan's uh, question is: As a, f- a new fan of F one, who absolutely loves the show, cheers for that, uh, Ryan. How would you recommend going about learning more about the sport in the past? 
Okay, a couple of things. Um, well, reading. There's a lot of good books out there. You could go back and check out our show that we did on The Mechanic, which was the uh, the book written by uh, Mark Elvis uh, Priestley. He was a former uh, McLaren um, uh, mechanic. Then t- t- talks about uh, a lot about that. But I mean, f- from a McLaren point of view, there's, I mean, learn about the great names of the past. We, we always, uh, we, we talk about uh, Lewis, obviously, as, uh, you know, and we compare him to some of the greats of the past, like Michael Schumacher, Fangio, Senna, Prost, Nicky Lauda. I mean, go through and and learn about some of the great names, find books about them, watch YouTube. If um, uh, F1 TV Pro is in your price bracket, sign up for that. They got a lot of historic races in the in the archive. More of these uh, historic races get populated uh, more and more over time. Those are great ways to go back, see some of these uh, greats uh, when they were actually racing, and see what the sport was at different times, like in not just uh, as it is now, go back even five years, ten years, into the into the noughties and the 90s, 80s, whatever it is some great stuff uh, uh to, uh, to to catch uh, online what what other suggestions i think do you, you have, nailed uh, a couple of really good ones one the f1 tv pro app is is a no-brainer in terms of the value it delivers and i would recommend hey get the app in the off season go back and watch the championship watch the 2007 championship the 2008 championship the 2009 championship they are absolute gold and they're fascinating and it helps to give you insight into a different era of formula one both in terms of the drivers the racecraft the machinery but also the politics are around the series and the around the sport and you could also do other things that you know if you don't want to sit through an entire championship go and watch the final race from brazil in in 2008 or go and watch the u.s Grand yes. Prix from 2005 yeah. like there's an awful lot you can learn by watching some of these races and then ultimately as well reading books but to me, one of my favorite things to do is I spend a lot of time on Wikipedia and I actually go and I print out mm-hmm. the championship tables for every single season and I have a binder so I can just flip through it. And I, it's kind of like a slideshow for me. Like I like to go through and like, I want to look at the progression of Kimi Raikkonen's career year over year, team by team by team. And I feel like I learn a lot and then I'll see a moment like, ah, I want to learn more about this. I'm going to go and get the F1 TV Pro app. But there are so many tools available that weren't available available previously, but I would say start with getting the F1 TV Pro app. And then there's a handful of books, which we'll Mm -hmm. get to in a minute because another listener asks, uh, but grab some of those books as well. But great question. Yeah, another race uh, that I would suggest uh, going to watch is a uh, Japanese Grand Prix '88 <laughs> Suzuka, the Good infamous uh, coming together of Senna and Prost. Uh, I mean, there. I mean, we, we could sit here probably for ten minutes and just rattle off uh, stuff like that. So, F1 TV Pro, like I say, you know, if it's in your price bracket, definitely uh, give that a long hard think uh, about that. Or actually, as Hammy said, it's a bit of a no brainer. <laughs> okay, next one is from JJ and H Town. Hey, Mark, saw that you're looking for questions for the show, and I'm curious. What is the career path to making it onto an F1 pit crew? Are these guys recruited? What makes someone qualified to be a mechanic in F1? So um, you can go back and check out the book club uh, episode that we did with Bird. I know we didn't talk about it in detail, but if you actually read Elvis's book, uh, Mark Elvis Priestley, that is, if you read Elvis's uh, book, uh, The Mechanic, in the beginning of it, before he talks about his whole time at McLaren, how he made it there, he talks about where he started from, how he got interested in F1, and how he got into motorsport, and kind of how he went from there. Because I'm not really sure how it about it is uh, in, in in this day and age. 
but certainly Elvis lays out what what it was like in in, in previous times. And basically, he just kind of worked his way up uh, through his ranks or through the ranks, working at uh, you know different uh, you know junior formulas and things like that. And basically, submitted a job application and kind of started off at the bottom of the ladder at McLaren, and then was on the what was it the the, the spare car, and then on the test team, and when they used to have uh, test teams and things like that. But uh, that that would be one of my shouts would be check out. The I mechanic. think it's an awful lot easier if you live in Europe and you're based in Italy or you're based in the oh, UK yeah. in Motorsports <laughs> Valley where a lot of Great call. not yeah. even just the F1 teams are based but where a lot of the junior Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula 2 teams are based but as Mark Priestley described he basically started getting his reps with a really small kind of minor league professional racing team and one of the lower, lower, lower formula, but he was able to get his reps. And when you're on these smaller teams, you're not particularly specialized. You're doing a little bit of everything because there may only be a couple of you on the crew. And as you advance up through the racing series, again, it's up to you. You build a reputation, you start applying, you get a job, you become more specialized, more specialized, and more specialized until you feel that you're in a place where you could actually now start applying for jobs in, in Formula One. And then you go in, you've got this resume here's the teams I've worked with, here's the skill sets that I've developed, here's the drivers that I've worked with, and you can present that to them because that's effectively what he did. There isn't necessarily a development ladder for for mechanics, and I think part of it is just getting those reps and being successful, but at some point, I think it really also helps just to know somebody to get your, to get your foot in the door for an interview. But go back to that podcast. Go yeah. back to the Book Club podcast if you haven't heard it. Yeah, and this uh, really segues nicely into the next one from Ryan Brinkley at Ryan Brinkley eighty five. How about the top five F one books to read? Cheeky fellow, that's a uh, show fodder, my yeah. friend. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I know I beat a, a little bit, uh, kind of uh, you know, condescending here, but uh, uh, but not really because uh, we're going to do. Uh, we did that one. Uh, you know, we've mentioned the mechanic by Elvis here a couple of times the past few minutes. That would be on my list, and we're going to get together and do more with uh, Bird over the weeks and months ahead. And we got some good ones uh, coming up, and we can't wait to to break those down and share them uh, with, with. Yeah, you the guys. only thing I would add to that is we've already done the mechanic that was the first book club episode we've yep. done uh, if you haven't read that one it's brilliant because it describes exactly what we were so just good. talking about so is a young mechanic ma- breaking into formula one but he was also with a team when they should have been and were winning championships but also at a time when the team was embroiled in one of the biggest scandals in the history of formula one it it intersects mm. his story his journey intersects with some very interesting moments so i would argue you pick that one up it's super accessible it's super readable uh the paperback's awfully cheap start there just start there i think it's a really great starting place and just to kind of go back about that one i really rode the roller coaster on that one i i really just the, the way that uh, that that elvis wrote that book just the way that it's narrated i thought was so clever because i i really felt like i was living along through each one of these moments and that spygate thing when he talks about how they were in the minibus going from the the the, the track at spa and then getting a phone call basically tell them to do a 180 and do a u-turn head back to the track because the news was going to come down and they're on their phones trying to figure out what was coming out these sort of conflicting reports that was very very well told you know i thought that was uh, really really uh, excellent with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart 
With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, uh, next one. Uh, uh, Janice at jcall1, sorry, jco1145. Uh, last year, Mark H. shared some of his struggle with mental health. Do you feel uh, comfortable sharing an update? Hammy, I'll throw that over to you. Do you yeah, feel comfortable yeah. sharing? You know, I feel, I feel yeah. um, that we've built a really close and tight-knit community here. And I know we look at the the numbers and it's thousands and thousands of people, but to me, it feels like we're talking to the same 40 or 50 people every single work. And to, to me, that, <laughs> that instills confidence because I, I like the community and I, I think we've done a really good job of attracting like-minded people. But um, and I, I don't try to talk about this too much, but obviously I had I have been struggling with a very specific type of of mental health for a very long time. And maybe the best way to describe it is that there's a portion of my brain that manages logic and reason that doesn't function correctly. And it can ultimately cause major issues with anxiety. And uh, if unchecked can lead to depression and things like that. And the way that the body tries to react to this, this high level of uh, anxiety is by forcing you to um, perform, um, I'll be honest, compulsions. And if you perform the compulsion, your brain will tell you, even though you know it's the stupidest thing in the world, your brain will tell you like, hey, the anxiety will go away if you do this compulsion. The reality is it might for a second, but it usually makes things usually makes things much worse, even if it helps for a second. So it's this constant battle of fighting this, the brain telling you to do these things to calm down the anxiety. And I've been, I've been on the same medication for a while now, and I don't know that it necessarily helps. It certainly hurts to come off it, but I don't think it necessarily helps. Um, but recently I, I found a clinic in the BC lower mainland where we live, um, that specializes specifically in the type of issue that I have. And they do two different treatments, CBT and exposure response therapy. Um, and when I've done therapy in the past, it's just talk therapy and it's just, let's spend hundreds of of dollars of your money and hours of your time talking about you as a child and what you did as a child. And that's not helpful. Like (laughs) I I know scientifically what's wrong with my brain. I just, I need to develop a skill set to help combat the, I need to develop a skill set that helps combat the moments where these issues happen. So thank you so much for reaching out. And again, the reason I want to talk about this openly is because even if one person at home is listening and they've been struggling with mental health and it encourages them to reach out to a doctor, to reach out to a counselor, to reach out to their family doctor, uh, do it because I'll be honest, I struggled with this for my entire life. And it's really only been since 2017 that I've been having meaningful conversations with my doctor. I've not been good in terms of Mm -hmm. follow-up and medication as I should have been, um, but I've discovered that there's a whole world of other people that are also struggling with this, but that there are countless different um, opportunities and ways to address or lessen the in- or lessen the impact. So I'm excited. Um, I can't wait to start uh, the exposure response therapy and the CBT. So that's going to be hopefully in the next couple of months. There's a bit of a waiting list, but yeah, hopefully it'll go from there. And I'll be honest, part of and I didn't say this off the top, but one of the reasons that I haven't been as as uh, diligent with the Sunday race reviews is um, 
usually the mornings are the absolute worst that you have a good night's sleep, you wake up. And the first thing that hits your body, like a tidal wave is the anxiety and the stress. And all of it just comes back to you. And on those Sunday mornings, like the last thing I want to do is watch a race, let alone record a podcast. So usually that's when I like, Mm -hmm. you guys, I'm just not feeling it today, but that's usually the worst thing I can do because the best thing I can do is fight through that get out there, do the thing. And then when I do it, even if it's only for a little while, I feel like a million bucks. So I have to keep pushing, pushing, pushing through. So yeah, that I probably long rambly response, but Thank you so much for uh, for listening, everyone. No, it's it's good. It's good. It's important to talk about because uh, you know, number one, I'm glad to hear that you're doing better. But you know, that's something that I, I've had some issues with as well. Like I've struggled with the with, with anxiety, which you know, um, I found out it was uh, basically tied back to um, an incident I had at work about ten years ago, flying into a remote project in bad weather with an extremely irresponsible and a bit of an a hole of a pilot who almost put the plane into a side of a mountain. And all the, you know, the, the the stress and everything after that. And then I didn't realize it was all kind of like tied together. I mean, fortunately, I was able, you know, I started having anxiety afterwards, kind of like as the after effect of all that. And then having to sort wow. through that with my doctor. And I didn't really realize it at the time. And then, you know, it was just like, it was like this one incident that kind of like really kind of like perpetuated and kind of deteriorated right, over right. time. So I, I've dealt with anxiety and it's very... You know, it's it's unpleasant, but I know where it can kind of go because it sort of start getting borderline depression, Absolutely. and that's a nasty, nasty place. But uh, you know, now it's kind of progressed to the point that I'm just a very uncomfortable flyer. <laughs> so I guess you know <laughs> that's uh, maybe a bit of a positive. So just makes it a little bit awkward sometimes planning for vacation but anyways, yeah, yeah. Uh, next one from uh, William Louis. Two words merch update so hammy this is your great so a bit of an update if you don't know mr daily has bought us a domain we are going pro so www.skidariaf1pod.com is ours so we're super excited about having a dedicated web page helps with the professionalism and if we ever want to try our hand at getting credentialed again in the future it certainly helps to not have to use a gmail email account so we're excited about that (laughs) but in doing so i'll be very honest with everyone at home we don't have the original vector assets for our branding um we discovered this one when we started doing the web and two when we started preparing the merch um so if there's anyone at home that has a really great portfolio of digital imaging work and and you'd like to reach out um please slide into our dms it would be very 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 light work i think I just need to be able to replicate the existing logo and a couple of different colors and just make sure it's a a scalable vector image. Um, But if anyone wants to reach out and help, uh, that will help kind of catapult the website into production, but also help catapult the, the merch into production. So we have a merch house ready to go. They're just waiting on the files. We're going to do two different versions of the hoodie. Um, They're going to be champion templates. So a really high quality, heavy stock champion templates with a champion logo embroidered on the I think the left sleeve or the right sleeve, I can't remember. We're going to have an embroidered maple leaf. The logo is going to be embroidered across the chest. And in, on the back, um, in silk screen, we're going to have it written always up to speed with Formula One. So exciting. They'll be in black and gold. They'll also be in dark blue and white um, and uh, light blue, kind of like a baby blue. But I cannot wait to show 
uh, show the first ones to the crowd. And like I said, they're going to be expensive. We're not going to make any money on them, but I just wanted to deliver something that I would be proud wearing and buying. So hopefully in the next couple of months, we'll have some screenshots. And we actually also have a model lined up for a form or for a photo shoot, AKA my child's godmother, who happens to be a model. So we've got that taken care of. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, hopefully soon, hopefully before Christmas. And I know I said, hopefully before back to school, but hopefully before Christmas. So should we, uh, can we like reveal where the tie-in for the black and gold comes from? And it's, it's the rich energy like <laughs> look, right? So no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not, no, it's, it's not, it's, it's clearly, not. I, I kid, I kid. I know where it comes from. It's clearly my passion for, uh, it's clearly my passion for October's very own and Drake and, and his entire, his entire yeah. crew and Toronto, the Toronto Raptors use black and gold and it's just kind of stylish. So, so yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's, it's a sharp Thanks, combo. Buddy. I love it. I love it. Uh, next one, Stacey, Stacey Dash, pardon me, at Stacey Dash F1. Love the show so much. What can we do to help you guys? Easy. Share the show with a friend. You know, if uh, you love the podcast, share it with someone else yeah, you think you might enjoy it. If you want to spend a couple moments of your time, hop onto Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever, leave a rating and review. That, that's really, that's that that's that's all we ask of you. That And it sounds like a lot, but not really. I think really. the single biggest thing I but can ask, Stacey, Stacey Dash, <laughs> This can't be the Stacy Dash. No, it's not the Stacy Dash. It's just another lovely listener who happens to sh- share the name with Stacy Dash from Share, but from Share with from Clueless. But um, there is one big thing you can do for us. Obviously, share the show, tweet, link, just talking about it with people that are also Formula One fans. But the single biggest thing that anybody can do, and I cannot stress this enough, is if you listen on Spotify, give us a rating, and if you live listen on Apple, give us that rating and a review. That's all we can ask. But doing so has a mega disproportionate impact on the searchability of our show in the search engines on those platforms. So you could have the best F1 show on those platforms, but if you're not getting reviews, uh, then you're not getting fines and no one's finding your show. So it really helps to surface your show. So again, I would never ask somebody to do this that isn't really a listener of the show, except for my coworkers. I forced all of them to do it. But uh, if you're a listener at home and you enjoy the show, please take the two minutes to give us a rating or a review depending on your platform. Platform, but thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Next one, Ben Gargett at Ben underscore Gargett. My question: What are the what's the one or two biggest things the FIA could do to uh, make up the grid even and more competitive for twenty twenty three? How do the midfield teams catch up? What can the bottom teams do to get their cars faster? Uh, well, simple answer to that is I think that they've already tried to do it with the uh, with with the new regulations. However, we're we're seeing that what was intended in theory hasn't always translated into reality just yet. We've seen flashes of it from time to time this year, and then of course now we've got like new cars and old power units. So we're kind of like in a, in a bit of a weird in between world, right? And then you, you kind of couple all that with the with the cost cap. Are, are we already at the the lowest level, or is it going to decrease now? Are yeah. We so at the next year, I next can't year we are on the scale. To, but they of course had to make some exceptions this year, and they added some cash back in because of the inflationary pressures. But next year should be the base. Sure. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah, so that's right. So I, I think they're doing it, uh, whether or not it's working. I guess that's more of the discussion. I mean, 
it, uh, it it was a radical shift to these new cars. And let's not forget, these cars were delayed a year because of uh, right. COVID. I mean, had there been no pandemic, we would be year two into these new regulations. But on you know, since you know, COVID just happened to come along when it did, and they you know they they postponed it for a year, so they basically had an extra year to to <laughs> to try and uh, design and uh, and build these cars. But really, they had no real knowledge uh, to of what they were going to expect these cars to do when they until they hit the tracks for 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 preseason testing and then as we saw especially with the with, with the porpoising effect that that was a work in progress for quite a long point uh, during to the you know, uh, through the season i mean it's more or less been sorted out for now um i mean with the you know that td that kind of like threw it in the the, the hands of the teams i mean tim had been saying it for for a long time it was all basically the old like the the, the ride height and whatnot right i mean to kind of like gloss over it uh simply but um next year i think will be interesting because we'll be a couple of years into the cost cap year two in the new regs and we'll see where it goes i have a couple of thoughts and i think this is a really great question ben i think maybe the first consideration is we probably shouldn't quite be in panic mode yet i think we we came in and we all predicted Mark, you and I predicted that some team was going to get it right, and it just happened to be the reigning champion in in Red Bull, who just happened to have the best power unit in the sport at the moment. So they they've won two titles yeah. that they clearly clearly deserve. But I think we we have to look for the positive this year. And one of the things that we have seen is that it's easier to follow. It's easier to follow closely. But in terms of what the FIA can do and what Formula One can do, I think there are some really obvious things that people aren't talking about enough. And one of them is the fact that we have Formula One teams in the championship right now, Sauber, Williams, and Haas, who are not even spending to the cost cap, which is appalling. We now live in a world where there is an instituted cost cap. And if you are a Formula One team and you are privileged enough to be a part of this championship, you should be penalized for every dollar you spend under the cap that these teams can never truly be competitive if they're not spending to the cost yep. cap. So my sense is that in the NBA, there's a luxury tax. So there should, yeah, there, there should be a there should, there should be a floor. There should absolutely like for be minimum. a floor. Like if the you know if the cost cap is 130, you can spend up to 135 without a penalty. But if you spend less than 125, you incur a penalty for every dollar you can spend under the floor. So that's the first big one to me. And again, when you've got three teams and possibly more that aren't even spending to the cap, well, that's three teams that can never truly be competitive, and it infuriates me. And then the other thing too is those same small teams often align themselves with drivers who clearly are not the best available option. And historically, we've seen this because they want the funding that comes with those drivers. In the cost cap era, there Mm -hmm. is zero reason to have a paid driver in Formula One. Every driver should be a paid driver. And if one of these smaller teams has a driver that is not cutting it, you cannot keep them on a two or three deal. You need to cut them out. And during the off season, you need to be testing other drivers constantly to find that talent because every construction point makes a big difference for these teams and then finally i think the other thing and i've stressed about this so much man you cannot have alpha tauri in formula one that te- you cannot have a team 
in a championship of 10 teams whose sole purpose is to function as a driver academy for another team. This isn't a 10-team championship because one of those 10 teams will never, never be given the opportunity to chase a championship. And furthermore, it throws into question the competitive nature of the championship when you have two teams that are effectively governed and operated by the same ownership entity. So for me, it's forcing those small teams to spend money, forcing them to acquire the best possible driver talent, and then you have to undo the mistake, which is allowing AlphaTauri to be owned by by the Red Bull, the Red Bull family. Those are that's where I would start before I'd even start touching rules. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's 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 a very very uh, big uh, conversation, but I think uh, you did uh, nicely there to uh, kind of sum that up. Uh, next one is from Emmy at F1 Emmy. Since you mentioned politics, what is happening with Canadian <laughs> politics? Okay, <laughs> got to throw one 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 pol- uh, political question in there. Okay, so Canada is a constitutional monarchy. We have a House of uh, Parliament. Uh, you know, it's it's basically the yeah. British system. We have uh, the House of Commons. We have a Senate, which is uh, basically the House of Lords in in Great Britain. Um, we have uh, basically uh, three main political parties. We have the Conservatives, we have the Liberals, and the uh, the New Democrats. Uh, new Democrats are left-wing. The Liberals, I would say, center-left. Uh, at one the point, they were center-left. Yeah, they, they've they've shifted more towards yeah. the left in more more recent times. Uh, the conservative are uh, a right wing uh, party. Now, the interesting thing is we had a federal election last year, and uh, the the liberals won barely. But to form government, they had to form a coalition with the with the new Democrats. So Justin Trudeau is still our prime minister. But uh, behind the scenes, well, not really behind the scenes, the leader of the New Democrats, uh, Jagmeet Singh, is uh, really standing up is like, well, we'll help you form a government, but we want this, this, this and this. So it's been an interesting marriage to watch between the liberals and the uh, and the NDP. Now, on the conservative side, they've been kind of rudderless for the last uh, several years, ever since uh, 2015. Um, Stephen Harper was the prime minister and leader of that party for a long, long time. After he stepped down, there was... I think it's fair to say a bit of a, I wouldn't say a vacuum, but there wasn't somebody with the same presence, the same, um, you know, personality and, and just somebody that couldn't fill his shoes. Uh, you had Andrew Shear who failed to do the job. Then you had Aaron O'Toole who failed to, to win the job. And they just had a leadership convention a week ago. Uh, they've chosen a fellow by the name of uh, Pierre Polyev. So he will be the, uh, the leader of that party moving forward. There have been some rumblings here and there and some commentators saying that perhaps Trudeau's thinking of calling a snap election this fall, but I personally don't see it myself. But if uh, everything goes and this this marriage between the NDP and the Liberals hold, that the next election on the books is in, what, 2024, is it not? And then we'll see how it goes. Is yeah. it 2025? Oh, my goodness. I thought it was 2024. Yeah, so they called it uh, Trudeau. Trudeau had called that election in 20. 20- there was an election in 2019. That's when he lost the majority. He called an election in 2021, hoping yep. that he was going to benefit by the pandemic. Didn't work out. Had to forge another alliance with the NDP. Uh, he's benefited really since 2015. And I like the way you put it, that the conservatives have been somewhat rudderless. And I think they've become somewhat more fragmented with influences that are flowing over, mm-hmm. over the US border. And I, I would say the one other thing that I would add about Canadian politics at the federal level is while our system is often 
very similar in structure to the UK in terms of it's a parliamentary democracy and you have multiple political parties and the leader of the party that wins the election becomes the prime minister. In Canada, the prime minister and the prime minister office is all but an untouchable behemoth that if you are a prime minister, you are an untouchable beacon of power in the political ecosystem, whether you're governing from a minority position or a majority position. Whereas in the British system, British parliamentary parties eat their prime ministers alive and they just churn through them. In Canada, once you achieve the status of a prime minister, you are all-encompassing and and your party feigns to you and there's significant and massive party discipline. Rarely ever does anybody vote against the party on any particular issue. And this is all sides. This is NDP. This is the liberals. This is the conservatives. But I've always enjoyed watching the the, the British political system because you would assume that, well, if parties are churning through prime ministers, doesn't that make for a more instability at the political level. And it doesn't really seem that way, but it also just ensures more accountability on the prime minister. And I'm not going to speak to who I voted for. I I voted across the political spectrum, but um, I think Trudeau has been caught up in some scandals that I think in UK would have had his head Mm -hmm. five times by now, five times by now. Yeah, he's been, uh, been, uh, how do you say it? He's been very you know, yes. adept at being yes. able to maneuver these <laughs> uh, scandals over the past several several years. But uh, interesting side note, uh, when I was in uh, Ottawa just uh, a couple of weeks ago for a family vacation, we did make a point of going to uh, do a tour at the Senate and also at the uh, awesome, uh, tour of the House of Commons of the Parliament, which is really cool. The only thing that was uh, disappointing is that uh, Centre Block and East Block, which Centre Block is the... Um, the traditional home of the, uh, the the House of Parliament, the House of Commons, that is undergoing a ridiculously massive uh, renovation that is going to run for at least 10 years uh, due to the age of the building and a lot of the restoration that needs to be done. So that's uh, temporarily being housed in the West Block. So we went and did the, the tour around there. And then the East Block is the traditional home of the Senate, but they're just a couple of blocks away at the old train station, which used to be a convention center. But very, very interesting, very inspiring to go and see the heart of democracy in our country and very, very uh, cool to see. But it is it is quite the, uh, you know, going to Parliament Hill is quite the experience. It, it's it's cool to see it up close, oh, especially when you live all the way out here at the fringes of, of the country on the West Coast. It's kind of cool to go and see it uh, in, in real life. So let's close it up now. We'll finish up strong, hopefully, uh, with uh, a couple more F1 questions from Milan in uh, Vantaggio at Milan Jar, J-A-R-R. How difficult is it for F1 to organize their schedule so that, for example, all of the races in North America can be run during the same month? And uh, it seems like they are zagging all over the place. Can they be more efficient with the schedule? You know, you and I, we've talked about this uh, at times in the past. I mean, if you look at the schedule for next year, and I realize it's provisional. We, we, We touched on it briefly on the Thursday show. It's, you know, it's jumping all over the place. You're in Europe, then you're coming back to Montreal, then back to Europe, and then you're going to Miami, and then you're, you're, you're really jumping all over the place. I mean, they've made this commitment to being uh, carbon neutral by 2030. You have to think with all this, you know, continent hopping that they're doing, you know, just from, from one point uh, alone doesn't really help their carbon footprint, but more to the point of Millen's uh, tweet, it's not very efficient either. And I know it has a lot to do with, uh, with, with other things and other agreements they have in place. But uh, 
could they be more efficient? Could they have more like regional championships? That that's or regional championships, but regional flavors. You know, like a North and South American, an Asian, Middle Eastern, a European. That that's something that we've kind of uh, we we've tossed it around at, at times over the past uh, couple of years. Uh, I would love else to, to add have to that, on somebody from Liberty who's actually responsible for putting together the championship because I have countless questions, but I think you and I could sit down. <laughs> I think our listeners can sit down at home and they could probably write up yeah. a great schedule that chops thousands of kilometers of travel off the calendar. It keeps it regionalized. But I think that there's a ton of, of politicking at play here. And I think if you look at North America, Montreal never wants to be back to back with Miami and Miami would never want to be back to back with Montreal, right? Like you want, you want the focus, you want the, the, the focus of motorsports and formula one to be on your city for a certain period of time. And when you're talking about multiple races yep. in North America, if you had Miami and Montreal and Austin and Vegas back to back to back to back, well, does that dilute any of these, any of these events, do they become less special? And at the same time, all four of these races now are going to be competing for sponsors because they're, they're going to accumulate some amount of ticket revenue. It might be more competitive when you're going up against four races within six weeks. But the other thing you have to compete for is sponsorship dollars. The other thing you have to consider as well is that Oftentimes, these tracks are only available during very limited times each year. And Montreal is a perfect example of that, that that circuit can only be used for professional racing twice a year in very narrow windows. That's it. And then you also have to consider whether that if you are going to bring the North American races together, when do you do that? Is it the spring to accommodate Vegas and to accommodate uh, Miami? Because it's not going to work June or July for those races. And if you bring it to April, May, well, that's not necessarily going to work for Austin. It's definitely not going to work for Montreal. Do you shift it to the fall? But then all of a sudden it doesn't work for Austin and it sure as heck doesn't work for Montreal. It's a real challenge. And then you have other races on the calendar that pay a fee specifically to secure a certain date. We all know that there's this competition between Bahrain right now in Australia. They pay primo dollar to alternate as the opening mm -hmm. race of the season. And we know Yas Marina pays premium dollar specifically to be the final race of the season. So when somebody sits down to write the schedule, there's countless things to contend with. They can put a beautiful regionalized calendar together. But once you start getting into the economics of the sport and the politicking of the sport, there's a thousand other forces at, at play to contend with now and i'm just spewing off yeah. cliches because we've been yeah. going an hour 45 so <laughs> i apologize <laughs> no you, you make some good uh, make some good points i mean and and of course uh, like you say some races in some locales just don't work at certain times of the year so whoever does that job putting the schedule together i don't envy them because i think it's probably yeah. one of the tougher jobs there is to try and come up with something that works and something that works for everyone or works for, for for most people last one also from uh, millen why do f1 teams emphasize the driver's championship rather than embracing the constructors winning the world's constructors championship takes the effort of the entire team both drivers and both sides of the garage yeah 100 percent. I, I don't think that it get, nearly gets uh, the, the recognition uh, that it deserves and uh i think that is a, a worthy worthy uh comment yeah what i, do you I think, very Abby? much agree with this and i've never really truly understood it at the end of the day the world drivers championship scores the team and a driver a 
a trophy, a championship. And historically, that's the one that matters, right? Like we all know who won the driver's title in 91, 95, 97, 2004, 2007. I think most people would be hard pressed to know who won the constructor's title in any one of those years. Like we don't go back and talk about the great constructor's title of 1987, but we sure as heck are talking about the great driver's title of 1987. And it's interesting more so because the teams don't earn any prize money through the WDC. Obviously, having a great driver who's winning championships for you attracts sponsors, but prize money is what's most Mm -hmm. important to these teams, although probably less so with the influx of sponsorship and big American dollars that are flowing into the sport right now. But the Constructors Championship is what dictates the amount of prize money that teams get. So I agree that I feel like the WCC should be bigger, but at the same time, I cheer for individual drivers in a way that I've never cheered for a team to win a Constructors Championship. That's always been secondary to me. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's it's completely different than uh, than any other sport. I mean, you cheer for the Lakers because you love the Lakers and, you know, maybe you love a couple of their, you know, the, 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 the players on it or whatever the sport is. Right. So it's, it's kind of funny. It's like, you don't like cheer for LeBron to win the NBA championship. And then, well, I don't really care if the Lakers win because, well, I mean, as amazing a player as LeBron James is, he still needs right, help. He's right. not going to go win uh, every single game by himself. So it, it, Formula One is weird that way. I mean, it's, it, it's very, sort of uh, contrary to the way that we cheer and support in other sports so it's a it's an interesting uh, situation but we're done Tammy, much like this yourself was awesome, uh, though. This we're, was we're so done good. here it was good i yeah, this is something we needed to do for a long time, not not just yeah. for like everybody, like for, for the community, but this is something that you and I have been dying to do for literally months now. So I'm glad that we finally sat down and and did this thing on a Sunday night, nonetheless. I mean, usually when we do the race reviews, it's like, boom, we're in and out less yeah. than an hour and it gets posted to really quick. So this this is fun to do a do a long one for for, for once. So we're going to leave it there. Thank you all for, for listening to the show. Uh, we will be back in a couple couple of days on uh, Thursday with the with the regular show we got the Singapore Grand Prix coming up a week from now and then yeah we're well and truly into the stretch run in the 2022 Formula One World Championship still a bunch of races uh, to go and we will bring it all to you here uh, the rest of the way and uh, that's it for myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton have a great week and we'll be back in a couple of days and until then take it easy and we'll talk to you again very very soon bye for now